sharing our stories is such a human thing and can really help heal us, you know, as a culture. So I think it's really important. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. I'm so excited that my book, Come Home to Your Heart, which is part personal essay collection, part guided journal, is available for pre-order. The link is in the show notes. It truly is a book that I wrote from my heart to your heart so that you can remember your innate wisdom and fall back in love with yourself. So when you pre-order, this gift of knowing yourself will be delivered on your doorstep as soon as it's published in May. So let's dive in. My friends, today I am beyond thrilled because I have an incredibly talented writer joining us and we actually worked on her memoir years ago. And so to see it out in the world is such a thrill and such a treat. Her name is Francesca Royster and her memoir is called Choosing Family, a memoir of queer motherhood and black resistance. Welcome, Francesca. Oh, thank you so much, Nadine. I'm really happy to be in conversation with you today. Oh, I'm so happy to talk with you. So we met years ago in a memoir class, and I love that as I've been reading your book, I see little scenes that you wrote in that class. Yes. And yes, so Uh, suddenly it's like my memory is completely sparked. And I go, wait a minute. I remember when she worked on that and when she worked on that. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a thrill to see your beautiful book out in the world. So why don't you tell everyone what it's about? Okay. Thank you. Well, um, yeah, absolutely. There's so many places where our coming together really helped shape the memoir and the story I wanted to tell. So um, this is a story about the concept of queer family and chosen family and thinking about the gathering of blood family and friends and loved ones that have sustained me as a new mother, as kind of an older new mother. My connection with my partner, Annie, our daughter, Cece, who we adopted, and then thinking about the concept of chosen family as one that has helped us navigate some of the pressures and stresses of the world, especially in these early years of of our daughter Cece's life, as well as thinking about the idea of chosen family as a, a way in my own family, kind of intergenerationally, the way that we survived racial violence and poverty by banding together beyond bloodlines. And so Part of what the book is really thinking about is how chosen family is a way of making community and also bringing your strengths to create resilience and sustenance in a world that sometimes is trying to keep you small. So um, I look at stories of my mom, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother all in Chicago 
and the ways that they kind of pushed beyond some of the, the definitions of traditional motherhood to make these relationships that really helped them keep going and that I borrowed, you know, as a blueprint for my own family. Mm. There's so much goodness in the book. And I really latched on to the idea of the chosen family. I think that so many of us in the last few years, as a result of the pandemic, experienced great loneliness and isolation. And we're trying again to form community. And we might be starting off like brand new with trying to create new communities or trying to rekindle friendships that were strained in the midst of the pandemic and or maybe because of the pandemic, strangers have been helpful and have now become friends. So I think that the landscape has really shifted and changed in terms of community and friendship. So how do you think chosen family has helped support you through raising Cece? Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the ways that I've leaned on my chosen family has been you know, kind of recognizing the loss of my own mother, you know, who died pretty young and how she brought with her, like all this knowledge about what it means to raise a child, just like everyday things like, you know, what do you do when your baby has gas or, (laughs) or kind of in the bigger way, like, how do you live the life of um, like a full person and kind of sustain yourself when you also want to, really give all you can to your child. So my mom lived that by example, but I really would have loved to be able to talk to her. And she passed away at least 10 years before you adopted Cece. So my chosen family has been this source of wisdom and, and support. And they are also coming from a pretty wide background in terms of like racial identity, class, and age, I feel like their perspectives have really helped Annie and I think of new ways of becoming mothers. And then I think that this time has also meant that I I also have seen my my living blood relatives in a new way too, and, and kind of appreciated their place in my life and the importance of making a space and trusting them too. So my dad and my stepmom and, you know, my aunties and uncles have also been a part of it. And it really helps that they're also very loving toward my chosen family as well. And, you know, we will have parties or family dinners where we incorporate everyone. And it's just a really nice source of connection, something that I really missed during the pandemic. That was one of the biggest and hardest things was like gathering around the dining room table and eating together and, you know, just kind of our dining room table is kind of tiny. So that ritual of bringing people together was often, you know, often required a little creativity just to make sure everyone had a seat. But when we finally been able to open things up and have people over again and hear that crosstalk across generations of my friends and family. Uh, It's just been really beautiful. And I think for Cece, it really helps create a sense of belonging and connection that is really important also as an adopted child too. Mm, Yes. And you talk so much about the importance of wisdom from different generations. And you have this beautiful chapter early on 
which explores the stories of your mother, your grandmother, your great grandmother. And Silly was especially impactful in your life as someone who opened her home to many different people. And that seems to have had a big impact on you. So what do you think has been the impact of these different generations on you? Um, well, for sure, just the the idea of home and the importance of home and that that household or home as a physical place can look different. It can, you know, you can open your doors to people. It can be messy. It can be maybe not as big and luxurious as you want, but to have a meeting place for folks is really, really important. And really it's a way of kind of leading in the community in some way to like make a meal and share it. So I really learned that from Celie. I also learned the ways that opening up to folks um, sometimes means like also sitting with difference and sitting with conflict, because when you do that, you're we're bringing together different politics, different worldviews, generational opinions and interpretations. So trying to create a feeling of good faith that allows for, yeah, just like different life experiences seems to be an important part of like the chosen family idea. And also the importance of healing, because sometimes when you are redefining family, it's really in the face of loss, whether it's, you know, for CC, the loss of a birth family, or, you know, for Celie, for my great grandmother, you know, she came to Chicago and started this boarding house in the face of the racial violence that she was leaving in New Orleans. And when she she created this household and had boarders who were other folks migrating from the South and people were bringing with them, you know, experiences of trauma, of family left behind. So some of the, I think the, the thing that makes a chosen family work is kind of recognition that you're coming together sometimes in the face of struggle and also in the face of of sadness and you're also let, bringing your own vulnerability and yeah, let, letting yourself kind of learn things from, from folks who might not think about things completely the way that you do too. So it's been, I think, a, a process of acceptance and it's sort of an ongoing process of, of learning that I think probably my great grandmother experience, but for sure, I, I think Andy and I are also experiencing as we continue to live and grow with our chosen family. Yeah. And I, I wonder about that. I was just nodding my head so much as you were speaking, because I have found that some of the people who are closest to me came in during really hard times or they, my connection with them was as a result of, we have shared trauma. Um, and so you're right in that there's healing. Um, but sometimes these relationships come out of transition or trauma or loss. And Mm -hmm. so when you are sitting at the table with someone who might have a different opinion, a different political perspective, what have you found to help create understanding or unity despite those differing opinions? 
Well, I definitely find, you know, just the basic old fashioned listening and, you know, mutual respect is really important. So I do feel like when we are bringing people together, there's a point where we have to kind of establish what we share in terms of values. And ironically, as someone who does not practice organized religion, I'm thinking about moments where we've begun a meal and maybe my dad is there and maybe my stepmom's family is there and they're religious in a different way or spiritual in a different way than my friends. And there's been like these mini arguments around uh, saying grace. And so, you know, as the host, we're like, okay, well, what do we do? And the answer to that conflict is to give everyone a chance to say something or to kind of open up the conversation, Mm -hmm. but, you know, in a civil way and to kind of create, create an atmosphere of mutual respect and to try to honor that as opposed to not saying anything at all. So I think that that's really important. And I think that having a chance to while you're doing that, while you're listening to each other and kind of making space for each other, like having chance for food and for play and fun. I think that all of those things, good music, like that helps create a common ground. And really like in some ways, the presence of CC in our current gatherings has been also a way to kind of create common ground because there's, you know, someone that we all care about and who's a witness to our coming together. And that kind of makes, a, it just makes even stronger the necessity to create understanding between us. So I really find that just that, that centering of love and mutuality and acceptance that we are bringing different things, like just informing ourselves about each other's lives has helped bring people across distance. So often too, like storytelling has been a really important form of connection and healing across difference and also in the face of trauma. And one of the the essays or one of the chapters, I'm sorry, in the memoir is about that, about coming together with Cece and our friend Layla and Joy the night after the Orlando Pulse shootings. Mm-hmm. And the adults are really aware that this profound act of violence has happened. And the kids, he's seen her friends who are, I think, three or four, obviously, I think are probably picking up on the tension, but they don't know what's happened. And we end up having food, but also having this storytelling session prompted by Cece about times that we've been hurt or sick and that we've survived. And this was like a ritual that sometimes Cece wanted to have before going to bed was to hear hurt and sick stories. And there was something about having that ritual at this backyard barbecue that gave everyone a chance to kind of talk about their different experiences, one friend's survival of war or big and small things, but like we were bringing together these different nations. And I think that those kinds of quiet, kind of intimate chances to kind of talk and tell who we are to each other is also part of what sustained us through hard times so far. Mm. It's beautiful to think of Cece as a witness. And I feel like in the company of children, 
all of us want to do our best and we want to create understanding and love for each other. There is something about a child witnessing everything you're saying and doing that makes you want to break old patterns or open up understanding to people who have different opinions. I see it with my own family that ever since Geo has been in the picture that we try really hard to break old cycles or to overcome shame or secrecy and to talk openly and in a more understanding way yeah. than we might have before he was born. So, but I'd never thought about it that way, that our children are a witness to what we're doing and we want to bring our best selves to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely when we can. And I do think that the pandemic and the lockdown makes that even more like urgent. Like it's been a time as you kind of pointed out toward the beginning of of like loneliness and isolation and also loss. And so I noticed that there has been just like this desire to an urgency to keep connecting, you know, in whatever way we can, you know, like, like so many people around the country and really around the world, like inventing new ways so that we could still have the space of connection. I think that's been really important. And I actually started taking banjo lessons during the pandemic mm -hmm. and befriended my teacher. And once we were all traveling and connecting again, my, my teacher lives in Arizona he came and he was part of one of our chosen family gatherings. And I found that even though that pandemic time was one where we were physically distanced, it also just made me even more, it brought to the forefront how hungry I am to connect and to widen community when I can. Mm -hmm. Like folks doing drive-by birthday parties or dance parties on Zoom, like that we just invent ways to continue that. I think that's a really important way to stay alive and to, to stay healthy. Mm, yes, the connection is key. And one of the other parts of the book of the many parts that I loved so much was learning about your connection with Annie, your partner, and just navigating love and life and desires with another human. There's this beautiful moment where you describe, I think you were on an airplane and you were headed towards the bathroom and you saw a person holding a woman, holding her daughter, I believe in her arms, her child, mm -hmm. and something suddenly stirred in you that you wanted a child. And one of the hardest things was having to go to Annie with this desire and being afraid that maybe she might not want the same thing or how it would change your relationship. So mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit more about that time and what your fears were? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that realization came also at the end of a trip, an international trip where we were both traveling together with a group and kind of learning how to lean on each other in a way that we maybe hadn't completely before, like in this new context. But maybe because Annie, like I've recognized, is the love of my life, definitely the most serious relationship I've had in my life. And our compatibility from the beginning was just so strong. I just felt, yeah, this, this sense of risk and potential loss 
And it was really, I really had to decide, is this desire to care for another strong enough to risk losing this person who is so amazing? But I also had a hunch that, you know, the things that I love about Annie would make her a great partner and a great mother and, um, you know, life partner with a child that we could really make a family. And I was really seeing it a lot in the ways that, you know, watching her like taking care of her students or listening to her with her friends or with family, with small children. Like I knew that that lovingness and um, generosity was part of what I loved about her. But I also knew that this would be a change in our lives and even in my own conception of what it meant to be queer. And so it would mean bringing someone else along with kind of expanding that definition of our identities and maybe putting ourselves on a path of where we might um, have to reach outside of our LGBTQ bubble and, you know, just kind of redefine everything from finances to time, to energy, um, as well as like really thinking about conventionality and queerness. And it has proven to be a big change for sure in all those ways, but it's also, I think what has been beautiful about this process is that our old selves are part of our new selves and, you know, our strengths and the things that we have seen in each other inform the way that we parent and the ways that we have built communities. So I feared that we had to kind of reinvent ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in doing that at age 41 was kind of scary. (laughs) So, but (laughs) as it turns out, while we have had to change a lot and push ourselves, those foundational things about ourselves and that we love about each other are still there with us. So I think Mm -hmm. I had to well, first I had to learn to let her in, you know, on, you know, in terms of that, that idea and that need and the urge to become a mother felt kind of abstract and it almost felt maybe not biological. I don't know if that, if I really believe that, but there was something that seemed irrational and I just a yearning that I couldn't really put my finger on because I, I had accomplished many of my own goals Um, But there was just kind of this desire to do something that felt really, I think, becoming a mother is partly about sending, caring for someone and sending them into the future. And so it just felt like something big that I didn't want to miss out on. So we eventually did have that conversation and Annie was so open and ready to change with me and that I'm just so happy about that and so grateful. And you brought up in the book, queer time, the idea of queer time. And Mm -hmm. it was something that I hadn't explored before. And I actually wonder on page 39, if you would be so willing to read a few of the paragraphs that you wrote, because one of the things that brought up with this motherhood desire was okay, what does that mean for me and the impact and effect that has on my identity? And this is where queer time came in. So do you mind reading a little bit from page 39 from the spot? This felt doubly weird. Maybe just a couple paragraphs. Thank you, Nadine. I will for sure. 
Okay, this felt doubly weird because I was a lesbian who identified as queer. To call oneself queer, especially as an African-American woman, was to purposefully court contrariness and unconventionality. We're not supposed to yearn for things like motherhood and family, at least not in the same way that the cooing women at the breeder's Starbucks do, right? One of the things that I'd loved about being queer is the freedom to create my own circles of kinship, and those circles aren't beholden to a biological clock. I've always felt myself guided by a queer sense of time. Queer writer and thinker Jack Halberstam has written about the concept of queer time as one that's shaped around cycles of friendship and collaboration outside of the reproductive timeline of marriage, babies, and death. Queer time ages you differently and offers a more fluid sense of life's meanings and relationships, shaped by, quote, strange temporalities, imaginative life schedules, and eccentric economic practices, unquote, as he puts it. For me, that has meant not overlooking what's unsatisfactory about life as it's usually lived and trying something else. I've watched my friends, gay and straight, struggle to keep a sense of creativity and risk in their art and their teaching as they age and become responsible for others, maneuvering the weight of domestic life. I've watched my friends with children as they've struggled to balance childcare, home care, activism, scholarship, and each other. Would I be losing that commitment to queer time if I had a baby? And how would I convince Annie to join me? For the first time, I had to think about these questions, not just for myself, but together with someone else. Mm-hmm. I loved this exploration. I was just following along in the book. <laughs> what did you think about as you were exploring this and reading it out loud again? What comes to mind as you think about the topic of queer time? Well, I was realizing that I really haven't abandoned queer time at all, that there's a way that, you know, adoption has its own unpredictable time schedules. So part of what we've had to accept as first as potentially adoptive parents and now as parents who have adopted is like a more fluid sense of what the milestones are, like even just thinking about when a child is coming, but also even the rituals of birthdays now feel different because we're thinking about birthdays, but we're also thinking about coming home days. So yeah, I think that my fears about losing a sense of redefining time and relationships was, it was definitely founded, but luckily we figured out some ways of recapturing it. And I was also thinking about my blood family, my um, like my mom and my grandmother and great grandmother, that part of their lives was also rethinking their relationship to time and like thinking about my great grandmother's migration, the way that that movement, that move, like when Celie was 17, in some ways re restarted her life. It, It created a different kind of time schedule that just demanded like reinvention in a lot of ways as well. So it's one of the ways that sometimes I think queer time, sort of like the slang of uh, CP time, there are a lot of folks who have non-normative relationships to time. And sometimes it's seen as, as a, um, 
as a failing or a weakness to be late all the time or to put off uh, parenting or like in the case of my grandmother who had her last, last child at age 42, like it's seen maybe even as excessive. So reading that also made me think about stereotypes about African-American families as non-normative and ways of moving into the world and the ways that really, I think Jack Halberstam and his concept of queer time is embracing things that my own family was made to feel apologetic for in terms of our non-normativity. I think too, as I was reading it, all of these, these fears that we have before we become parents, it, it felt so good to hear them spoken out loud and written yeah. as someone who identifies as a creative and who really, really values my job as a teacher. I was very afraid of what a child would do to my creativity, to my career, to my marriage. And so to hear somebody else talk about those things felt very reassuring to know that I wasn't the only one who both desperately wanted a child, but also was just terrified at the change that might occur. And so you are not only a parent, a wife, a writer, you also teach at a university Mm -hmm. and you have so much going on. How have you found that division of responsibility and, and being yourself while still being those other roles? What has that looked like for you? Oh man. Yeah. Some days it looks like a really very frazzled person <laughs> doing, <laughs> but I appreciate that. Um, just that connection because you're right. Like I think that our generation are the last two generations of women who have been able to like really find spaces to create. I mean, this is a relatively new thing in our society even though there've always been women who have figured out by hook or crook how to make creative space for themselves. But I think that we're still kind of in a new era of exploring what that can look like and what cultural attitudes about taking time to balance, creating life balance and create and taking time for yourself and for creativity. Like those are definitely ongoing conversations for us as a culture. But I really feel like I am different selves at different times. And so I've just sort of accepted the fact that part of being a mother who's also a writer and a creative and all those things is that everything can be a priority. Like I don't necessarily have to rank all of my commitments at all times or keep the same ranking, let's say. So I can be kind of focused on my writing life, you know, in a certain, certain time of day and like my teaching, I have to kind of have a schedule for that because you know how grading can (laughs) pile up if you don't keep an eye on it. And, you know, also just leaning on my partner a lot. We're lucky that we have many of the same commitments. Like we do similar work, even though our topics are interests are different, but they're interconnected. You know, she's a 
a women's and gender studies professor, and we teach at the same university. So, you know, we really get the need to go back and forth with each other and um, to kind of make use of the relative flexibility of our time as professors so that it can complement each other. But it is really hard. Now that Cece is a little older, you know, she's 10, she gets it. Sometimes we bring her to events, you know, or we, we are doing our work right next to her, grading papers on the couch next to her. One of the challenges has been just to kind of model that having these multiple things that we care about is part of being a full person and like telling her stories about how we've gotten through school, like many, many years of school and why we did that. Or, you know, even bringing her to my book reading um, when I was launching it last week, like her seeing how writing a book is a way of engaging with people and hopefully inspiring people. Like, I think it was neat to have her there to see that. And at one point when I was citing books, she had made, she had crocheted some bookmarks so she was giving away bookmarks to people. Mm. And sometimes she would also sign the book and put like her name in a little mushroom. So at least in terms of like the writing life and CC, she's been really excited to participate. She's not always happy when I have to go out of town, but, you know, just sort of sharing all the, sometimes the struggles and the rough, rough edges um, has been helpful to just social know that sometimes it takes work and that's why we're not always always present in the ways that we want to be yeah our attention has to be divided a little bit so yeah I I've noticed this as well I think in the early years with geo I tried so hard to keep work and home life separate because when I was home I wanted to be fully home but then that also meant that he wasn't seeing my creative side and my teaching yeah. side. And I actually have a chapter in my forthcoming book. Um, it actually, it's interesting. The word witness comes up a lot in it. Oh. Um, and I'm, I'm connecting the dots right as we speak. It's a, it's about him witnessing creativity. Oh, that's um, and so I started realizing that I didn't have to keep them as separate as I thought I needed to, because in fact, it could be inspiring or connecting for him to see me in creative mode. And because of that, he too now, you know, comes to events. I did um, a storytelling, a live storytelling last month and he came and he actually listened as opposed to when he was a baby and he had no idea what was going on, but he came and he listened. And then we talked about the stories, not only that I told, but the other speakers told. And when on the weekends, when the podcast comes out, oftentimes we listen as a family to the episode together. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And so just imagining CC at your reading and signing books and giving the bookmarks, it serves as a wonderful reminder that what they see us doing is, is also modeling for them what's possible, which is huge. And that is something that you talk about so much in your book that I just, I came away with a lot. The word reinvention kept coming up that 
we can invent for ourselves what time looks like, what love looks like, what family looks like, what our creative lives look like. We can create that for ourselves. We don't have to rely on norms and stereotypes and conventions. So what comes to mind when I mention that? Oh, I think that is so, so true. And I think if I had really understood that I might've embarked on motherhood you know, earlier in my life, but I also think that I might not have come to that understanding until I was the person that I am now and really, you know, like really owning, owning my identity as a writer, which your memoir in a year class was so important for. And I think that that, that goal though, of really seeing that we don't have to accept the world as it is, it was an awareness that I felt, you know, as a kid, but really having permission to create the life that I want is something that, you know, as an older person, I I have more of a sense of how to do that. And part of it is because of the amazing, creative and quirky people that I have around me Mm -hmm. um, and that they are also kind of embarking on that journey too. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, but I think that that's just really a beautiful, a beautiful point. And I do think that sometimes the world doesn't confirm that sense of possibility and that you have to find sustenance and confirmation of the power of your imagination and your creativity. And and sometimes it, it might not come from school or it might not come from our families. And I was lucky that I had a family that was really supportive about having a creative life. But even if you don't, then there's a way that you can find find those models in other places by reaching out and making community and making connection. Yeah. And I find those models by reading. Oftentimes it's yeah. by reading other people's stories and seeing what's possible. I think that that's why I've always loved reading, even from being a small child, because I got to leave my very insular world and I got to know so much else that was going on and other possibilities and ways of living and learning about other people just by checking books out of the Chicago public library. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so great. And I know that there's a, a fantastic quote by James Baldwin, where he says kind of the same thing that he, as a kid felt like he was alone and in his struggles and in his suffering. And then by book through books, he kind of found just a lifetime of other people telling those stories of struggle that were like and unlike him. And I wish I could quote it directly, but yeah, I love that idea so much. Yeah. And I know that people are so curious just about the writing journey, your writing journey, because oh, birthing a book is quite a process. So, and, and you've done this multiple times. And in fact, right now you're, you're, you have two books out in the world at the same time. Um, and so tell us a bit about the seed of the idea for this book and the process of finishing and publishing it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's sort of a, a a wandering, definitely a wandering story, but maybe the seed may have come from, you know, writing about those earlier generations of my family first, writing about my great-grandmother Celie and my mom 
and kind of exploring ideas about home with my writing group and on my own. At one point, I was trying to make a documentary about Seely's brownstone. It's been torn down. So it was really, I did make a video and it was like this really sad video of walking through a vacant lot and saying, it's not here. (laughs) Um, So in my amateurishness, I think I you know, at least captured the feeling of something really powerful that isn't with us anymore. But that wasn't very satisfying. So I thought about writing about our family. Then in the decision to become a mother, I found that I wanted to keep writing those stories of indecision and just trying to figure things out. And some of it, like I wasn't writing all of it in real time as it was happening. Sometimes I was reflecting on things that had happened to try to figure out, you know, what they mean and how they connect. But sometimes it really was just trying to slow down time, you know, in those early years when Cece was a baby to just like take a snapshot and to have a chance to kind of think about the feelings and to document the feelings I remember in a free writing session in your class, like writing a section that ended up in the book that was about the first weeks of being a mother and that feeling of time slowing down, feeling of quiet and peace, but also the fear also of like, well, who am I outside of this wonderful living room where I'm sitting here with this baby Hmm. for hours and hours of the day. So anyway, I wanted to kind of captured that feeling. Even when I wrote it, I was a little bit after that, after that feeling, but, you know, just to reflect on it and think about it. So eventually when I had kind of a body of a story, I had seen that story studio was doing the memoir in a year class. And I knew friends that had done the novel in a, a year class, but I really wanted a, yeah, space of, other creatives who were on at the same point of a memoir journey as I was. I hadn't written a memoir before, of course, although I I sometimes use memoir and personal storytelling in my critical work as in, you know, my scholarship. But I really wanted to learn how to sustain a story and kind of make those stories have an arc. So that was really something that I learned in our workshop. So from there, I I had like a solid draft of something by the time we were done. And I was able to get an agent who was interested in representing the work. And in the meantime, I was continuing to write. And eventually we found a press that was interested. But in all of those draftings, I think having really great readers that I trusted and folks who were experienced and who could give me their sense of things. And because a memoir is, this one in particular, is involving a lot of folks. I really shared particular chapters with Annie and with my, Annie's kind of read everything, and with my dad and my sister to get the facts right and, you know, to make sure that everybody was okay being on the, on the page. Mm-hmm. And then Abram's book's showed interest. And I worked with a fantastic editor there with um, Chelsea Cutchins. One of the things that I really appreciated about her is not only did she really care about the story, 
but she recognized that the theory parts from talking about Jack Halberstam and Queer Time or how Toni Morrison, Toni Morrison's approach to adoption, like some of the the things that could sound more scholarly, that those belonged in, in the memoir and that those were ideas that were baked into the story that I was trying to tell. So she was really encouraging about finding a good voice for bringing in some of those ideas from other people. And one of my own fears was making a memoir that didn't feel accessible to anyone who was interested. So I really wanted to center queer theory and feminism, but also write a story that was relatable to lots of people and that was readable. So it took some drafts Mm -hmm. and different readers, but I, I feel like hopefully I reached what was at least satisfying to me about that. And now the pandemic was a really important time for just bringing everything together and editing and copy editing. And I'm really grateful for the quiet of that time as a writer. It was actually a very productive time. And then I took a leave from DePaul right after lockdown. So the first year after lockdown, I stayed locked down I finished everything up. So that also helped me to finish my other book on Black country music, which I was at some points kind of going back and forth and working on. And it helped to have another project that, you know, to get some distance as I was trying to make some hard editing decisions. And so here I am. And I'm just at the beginning of sharing the book with the rest of the world, but I'm really excited to be in conversation and to, yeah, connect to people who have shared some of my histories and experiences and also folks who might have different experiences and just to hear their thoughts. Mm. And I do think that you did a beautiful job of blending personal story with these different points of theory. And it really felt like I was getting such richness because I was not only reading your story, but then learning at the same time in a way that didn't feel overtly academic or inaccessible. It did feel accessible to me. And it was a beautiful braid and a beautiful blend, which I know is so, so hard to do. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, my, my goal was to write something that my grandmother would also like to read Mm. as she's someone who loved ideas and took some classes, but didn't get to go to college, you know, in a full way, but I think would be someone who'd be excited to talk about Audre Lorde or, um, mm-hmm. you know, or Toni Morrison, if given half a chance. So yeah. And thanks for the confirmation. Though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful. And I know that people listening are probably going, oh my gosh. So how do I actually do it? Like, how do I make the time, especially if I'm busy working mom or partner. Um, So what does the tactile process look like for you when you're making time to write? Do you do daily or do you block out longer chunks every so often? What does it look like for you? Um, If I am really deep in the process, like writing the book, but even actually before I'm deep in it, um, Morning Pages has been a really important tool for me. So I read Julia Cameron's, um, the writer's, the writer's, the artist's way, 
the artist way. Sorry. Yes. The gosh. artist way. The artist, artist way. Yeah. way. So yeah. yes, I'm a big fan of Julia Cameron's The Artist Way, and uh, which I um, read many years ago, probably too many years. And one of her tools is to journal, like really free writing, journaling for three pages every day and kind of using that as a way of kind of dumping, you know, negative thoughts or distractions, but also kind of finding where where you're you're following your the line of your own thinking. And so it's a, really a kind of meditative process. And I could imagine if you didn't want to do free writing, I think like doing some other meditative practice like walking or something else would also be really good. So that's been a really important tool. And I try to do that every morning if I can. Or sometimes it's like when I get to the office, before I open up my email, I'll do it. Um, But Mm -hmm. um, it also has really just helped to have a schedule every week to have like a chunk of time to really work on something. So I try to have a writing day every week. And I know not everyone has that flexibility in their schedules, but I have a day where I try not to do school stuff and I try to minimize like social media and mm-hmm. other things that kind of take my my attention away. And I'll set a goal for myself. Sometimes it's, you know, just to read and think about something or sometimes if I'm really in a process of drafting to get a certain number of pages done in that time. And when I'm working on a project, I really, I might not be able to have like big blocks of time every day, but I try to at least open up and look at what I'm working on every day. And, you know, even taking a half an hour or 15 minutes to visit whatever it is that you're working on. When I was writing my dissertation, I I had this Yo-Yo Ma, like greatest hits CD, and it was about 30 minutes long. And I would tell mm-hmm. myself, if I just sit down for the time that the CD is done, that will be enough today. So usually I could sit down and write for that amount of time. And then if I had more time, I would keep going. But there was something about the the signal of the beautiful music that just got me going. Mm. I also reward myself with a treat. Like whenever I finish, I set a goal. So probably treat myself after our, our conversation today. <laughs> <laughs> what do your treats look like? Um, my treats used to be really big, like a big, like pair of cowboy boots. I love cowboy boots <laughs> or, you know, something that, you know, really, if you're doing a lot of things, you can't do a weekly pair of shoes. So <laughs> I've tried to make it smaller. Like sometimes it's a new journal or a new pen or a little plant for my desk. Or, you know, it can even be like going out for coffee and an almond croissant, you know, at my favorite cafe at Metropolis, you know, so it can be just like a little, just a little pause where there's something wonderful and beautiful that I get to do. Sometimes um, I love music, so I have a long list of new albums or videos that people you know, tell me about, and I, I don't even have enough time to listen to all the music that I want to listen to. So like, I never got to watch Rihanna's performance at the Super Bowl. So one of my treats at the end of the day today is to take some time and watch it. 
So it can, it doesn't even have to be food. It can be a little YouTube treat. (laughs) I love this. I love it. Love it. I have a similar thing. Um, I found that when I was working on my memoir, I listened to the same album over and over again, Eric church, who's a country singer. I would, I don't know why it was, I mean, it had nothing to do with the tone of the memoir. It was very different, but Mm -hmm. I think I didn't have to think about the words because they were familiar to me. So it just kind of served as background music. And it was the same thing that as soon as I heard those first chords start up, it was a signal to my brain to begin. And then when I would hear song one playing again, it was a signal like, oh, look at that you already did, you know, 40 minutes of writing. Um, (laughs) So it's so interesting that other people share that process. And I'm a big, big fan of little rewards. And, and I like to take myself on dates to coffee shops. Mm -hmm. Um, It just feels so nice to either get a chai latte or, or to just sit in a cafe that I really love and be by myself and not have distraction just be in relationship with myself. That feels like a wonderful treat. So I am encouraging those listening to, to figure out what your treats can be. And, and I too love a good journal. So (laughs) I'll, I'll get a nice journal. I'll get a new book from the library or buy a book or just go to the bookstore just to browse. That feels like a really wonderful treat (laughs) or, Oh, I get to listen to this in inspiring podcast as soon as I'm done or take a walk on the beach. Those things really do motivate and incentivize. (laughs) They do. They really, it really works. Yeah. It's fun to realize that, oh, like the part of myself that sometimes feels grumpy or lonely or put upon is pretty easily pleased. Like I can, I can bribe her pretty easily. (laughs) She just needs to be recognized and you know, rewarded in some little way. So exactly, exactly. Well, as we wrap up, um, what would you tell a writer who has a memoir dream, but just feels like it's an impossible task? Oh, well, first of all, please do it because we need more, more good memoirs in the world. And I think that our stories sharing our stories is such a human thing and can really help heal us, you know, as a culture. So I think it's really important. I think that memoir, for me at least, came with a lot of fears around vulnerability and judgment more than any other kind of writing. And so I think just getting, taking some time to recognize that and to try to talk to someone about it, share them with a friend, you know, as you're writing, Sometimes the process of writing took me into some hard memories, so I had to really be gentle with myself in the process, but also just to keep going. And I think communities of readers, like really sweet, kind readers, is really, really important for a memoir. It's so true. And the first thing you said is we need your stories, which I 
wholeheartedly agree with. So many of the women writers that I work with will either ask the who am I question, who am I to write this, or they'll say there's already this kind of memoir out there. And while there might be, uh, say someone's writing a deep love story, and there might be a million memoirs out there that include love, it's your love story that's different and that is needed. And so, so often writers just need confirmation that their words matter, that their stories matter, that their story needs to be told and that other people want to read their stories, that we're craving to read other people's stories. And that has always been true for me. I desperately crave to know people and connect with people through their words. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and Nadine, I'm going to check out Eric Church also. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's a country singer. There's no, you know, it's it's just easy music. <laughs> um, and I have to remember which album it was. It was one particular album that I can hear the chords in my head. I can't remember the album title. And, you know, it and it changes. For a while when I was working on other essays, I was listening to a lot of Fleetwood Mac. Another mm-hmm. time I was on a Beyonce kick lately. It's been Rihanna. Um, I mean, it, it's, completely changes. But when I'm in a project, I can't listen to new music yeah. because I find myself lost in the lyrics and, Ooh, I like the sound. And what did she mean by that? And, and so then I can't go into my writing because it's not background noise. It's actually something I'm engaging with. So whenever I'm working deep in a project, the music has to be familiar and just almost a non-thought, just a sort of supportive background. <laughs> so, yes. Yes. Yeah. So maybe today, those who are listening, you can figure out what that album is for you, because as you said, Francesca, just the time marker of rather than even having to set a timer, you can go, okay, well, this album is 35 minutes. So I'm going to write through while the album plays. I think that's a wonderful bit of homework. I like to give listeners homework. So I think that is good homework and to find the treat that works for them. That (laughs) would be the incentivizer. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today. It means the world to me. Same here. Thank you so much, Nadine. Hmm. That was a good one, wasn't it, friends? I really appreciated speaking with Francesca and just getting all of her nuggets of wisdom. I encourage you to share this episode with a friend who would love this conversation. And you can find Francesca's book, Choosing family wherever books are sold i'll put the link in the show notes my forthcoming book come home to your heart is available for pre-order on bookshop barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com thank you so much michelle rado for all that you do you are part of my chosen family my friend remember everyone every heart has a story and every story has a heart see you next week Thank you.